Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we continue our series, I Won't Survive the Holidays. Today, Lead Pastor David Fossil has us look at a part of the Christmas story that's not often discussed, the view from Joseph's side and what he went through. Listen as Pastor Dave gives us some keys to make our lives better when life goes from bad to worse. Good morning. Why don't you grab your Bibles and turn to page 966, Matthew chapter 2. 966, we are continuing our series, I Won't Survive the Holidays. As you are turning there, grabbing the study guide in your program, I want to read you a story that Mike's, uh, Max Lucado writes in one of his books about a, a woman who had a parakeet called Chippy. So just listen as you guys are turning your Bibles. It says, uh, the woman loved Chippy because he was such a happy little songbird. Chippy's constant chirping just seemed to brighten her day. One day, the woman was cleaning the bottom of Chippy's cage with the vacuum cleaner when the telephone rang. She reached for the telephone without removing the nozzle of the vacuum cleaner from the cage. That was a mistake. The vacuum cleaner nozzle got pointed in the direction of poor little Chippy, and he was suddenly sucked up into the machine. When the woman looked back at the cage and realized what had happened, she was horrified. She dropped the telephone, turned, to the va- turned off the vacuum cleaner, ripped it open, and in the dust bag, she found her little bird. Chippy was a real mess, but he was still alive. So she raced to the kitchen sink and turned the water on full force on Chippy. The more she tried to wash him, the worse he looked. So she then took him to the bathroom and started trying to dry Chippy with her hair dryer, full force on high heat. Finally, she got the bird dry and put him back in the cage. Several days later, a friend called and asked how Chippy was doing. Well, he's alive, she said, but he just sits in his cage and stares into space. And then she added thoughtfully, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. You ever feel like Chippy? You ever feel like your life has just kind of just gone from bad to worse and I, don't, I just don't sing much anymore, I don't smile much anymore? If you've ever felt that way, certainly you can identify with um, Joseph and the Christmas story. As we're continuing our series, I, I Won't Survive the Holidays, we're going to look at the end of Matthew chapter 2, uh, which, is a, which is a passage that focuses exclusively on Joseph. We know that because Mary and Jesus, they aren't even mentioned by name. I, you, you would think if anyone's mentioned by name, it would be them. They're just referred to as the mother and the child at that point in the story. And everything is about Joseph. And what he went through. And the, the hassle and the problems and the issues that Joseph went through. We, we don't think about it that often. We see all these Christmas plays and pageants and our kids are wearing robes and they're the shepherds and the angels. And it all seems so fun and so nice and the Christmas cards and even the movies. But if you put yourself in their shoes, especially if you put yourself in Joseph's shoes, it was not a fun time for him. I mean, let's just think back. It, it started pretty good. I mean, in those days, parents arranged the marriage for their kids. So there was no dating and there was, you no, know, you, your, your marriage was determined for you, who you were going to marry. And sometimes it was for convenience and sometimes it was a financial matter. And sometimes it was just families liked each other. You were, had someone that had been chosen for you. And you knew this person from, they were a, a, a young age and you'd go to kindergarten with them. And you knew one day they would be my spouse. Now, as is the case when there was arranged marriages, you, you kind of grew to love them. 
They weren't your choice. They were your parents' choice. But with Mary, it was different. Right from the beginning, Joseph, he thought she was pretty and she had a good personality. And for her age, she was so mature, both in her in, in the way she carried herself and certainly spiritually, he he really liked her. And when it was that time, when it was it was permitted for them to spend time together, they would they would go on long walks just outside of Bethlehem where the fields were, a uh, uh, Nazareth and where the sheep would, would gather. And they would just talk and talk for hours. They had to wait just a little longer before it became official. They would be husband and wife. And then there was that that Saturday afternoon. It was already a cold day, but the rain made it bitter cold. And they were walking, as they normally did on the weekends, talking. And suddenly Mary got really quiet. She said, Joseph, I need to tell you something. And they sat down and tears started welling up in her eyes and he knew it was serious. He thought, maybe... Maybe it's her dad. He's not been doing well. Maybe something happened. But quickly he discovered it was something very, very different. It took her 20 minutes to get it out because she kept choking up. Finally, when she told him what she had to tell him, he couldn't breathe. Of all the girls in town, she was the last one he would ever imagine sleeping around. He was hurt and he was embarrassed he was devastated. They broke up. He could have taken her to court, literally, to the police. In those days, adultery was punishable by up to death. But, but while he was angry with her, he still cared about her. So he just, just break up and let's be done. You know, he, he could have forgiven her. If she just apologized. If she just, you know, said, you know, in the heat of the moment, I got carried away. If she, you know, told some story about some guy taking advantage of her. But what made it worse is she made up a story. Some crazy story about not being with anyone. Of course he didn't believe her. That's why they broke up. It made it worse. For the next three weeks, they didn't talk at all, which was really strange because every day they used to talk. And as he was doing his trade as a carpenter, he both missed her and he was angry at her. And he missed her and he was angry at her. About a month after the conversation with Mary, God spoke to him in a dream. He knew it was God. It was beyond a shadow of a doubt. And, and, and he knew God was telling him that Mary was, in fact, right in what she was saying. She was honorable and she hadn't been with anyone. And, and when he woke up from that dream, he was both happy and extremely frustrated. He was happy because he got to be back with her again. Even though everybody would whisper when they would come into into the room or wherever. He was also frustrated. He was frustrated at God. Why couldn't he have given him a heads up that what was going on? Why did he make Joseph wait? It's almost as if God was trying to test him. To see if he really was the kind of man that could father the Christ. It wasn't easy. It was actually quite uncomfortable. Where they lived was a small town and everybody whispered, wondering who the dad was. Things were starting to pick up. They were now married. And uh, and then the unthinkable happened. See, to us, we, we, we read the verse and it doesn't even phase us. We don't even realize the catastrophe that was the census. Caesar Augustus 
calls for a census. This would happen every seven to 15 years. In our, in our day and age, census is no big deal because the census takers come with a clipboard to our home and they figure out who's in each household. In those days, what you were required to do is you were required to go. And by the way, it wasn't just going down to city hall. No, in those days, you, you had to go to the place of your ancestry and where your family was originally came from. For, for Joseph and for Mary, this was an 80 mile trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem. 80 miles, estimated to take four days on foot. But with Mary, it was different. She, she was, she was at, at eight and a half months. She was already starting to have contractions. And getting from Nazareth to Bethlehem, they didn't, they didn't go in a Toyota Camry. No, they went in a, on a donkey. And, you know, riding the donkey on the beach in Mexico is a ton of fun, right? Riding the donkey when you go into the Grand Canyon, ton of fun. Riding a donkey at full term, not so fun. And they had to stop a lot. You didn't want to risk the baby's health, not at this point, especially at this point. They finally arrived and Joseph was begging God, not, not on the side of the road, God, not, please, not on the side of the road. We can't handle that. If we get to Bethlehem, we'll be fine. I guarantee you that's what they were thinking. I guarantee you. See, we're, we're thinking, well, you know, they got to the inn, they got to the hotel, no room. I mean, that's to be expected. You, you don't go to a beach town on 4th of July weekend and try and find an open room at 8, 9 p.m. at night. No, you go on TripAdvisor a month earlier and book it. It's Joseph's fault there was no room in the inn. They weren't planning on staying in the hotel. I promise you. They were planning on staying with family. You go, where's that in the story? It's right at the beginning. Why did they go to Bethlehem? Because that's where his family was from. That's the whole point. In those days, you didn't travel cross country. No, you normally stayed where you were born. It's right in there. You got to read between the lines, but I'm promised that I guarantee you there was a couple uncles that still lived in town. There was a couple cousins that still lived in town. And Joseph is hoping and banking that they're going to let us stay in the spare bedroom. No, no, we're not. No, we, we've heard your story about a miracle baby. We're God fearing Jews. I, I think you best go somewhere else. We're not going to allow a sinful couple, family or no family, into our home. And now they're stuck. They end up in a barn. A barn. You remember when your kid was born? Kids? All three of them were born at Walnut Creek Kaiser. Pretty nice facility, but even that wasn't good enough for me. They ended up in a barn. And we sing, away in a manger. Do you know what a manger is? It's a feeding trough for pigs. No bassinet from Macy's. No, a feeding trough. By the way, especially guys, but women as well, can you imagine? He's a carpenter. Trying to help your wife give birth with no doctor, no midwife, no epidural, no clean water. 
Can you even imagine that? I was at the birth of all three of my children, and the only instructions I was given by the doctor is help her breathe. I could barely do that. <laughs> we think the Christmas cards look really cute with the shepherds there. My guess is that, is, that, is that Joseph thought they were in the way. We just got here after eight days of traveling. We, we just had, had a bit, can you just leave us alone? And things keep going from bad to worse. Things slow down a little bit. They eventually, they rent a small house. He's waiting for Mary to recoup her strength before they head back home. They're going to fill out all the paperwork for the census and be done. As a, as a father, you, you know how it was, especially with your firstborn. You're, you're waking up because you're not even sure, are they breathing? And you kind of would, yeah, they're still breathing. And Joseph, you know, Mary was up three, four times in the night feeding the baby. So every time the blanket would fall off, he would want to get up. Every time the diaper was full, he would want to try and get up. He was trying to do the best he could. Mary barely got any sleep. He barely got any sleep. But there was that, that one hour in the middle of that, that, that night that he slept real deep. You know the kind of sleep I'm talking about. That kind, of, kind of like when you take extra NyQuil when you know you shouldn't. That kind of a sleep. I mean, it was deep, and he didn't hear the baby, and he didn't feel Mary moving. And he had another one of his dreams. But this was one of those nightmare, scary dreams. And when he woke up, he could only remember two words, get out. Get out. You're in danger. Get out. He knew it was from God and he hated, he hated waking Mary up. She'd just fallen to sleep after feeding the baby. And when he said to her, pack, she could barely believe what he, her husband was saying. Pack what? We're leaving now. Why? I had a dream from God. Are you, are you sure, Joseph? Pack. Grab anything you can. We're going to be out of here before the sun comes up. And as Joseph puts his wife on the donkey and he carries his newborn, he leaves Bethlehem thinking to himself, God, enough is enough. Enough is enough, God. Have you ever felt that way? I guarantee you Joseph did. I grew up in church, and the story we're going to look at this morning, I've never heard taught, ever. And yet it's part of the Christmas story. I've never seen any act in a play on this story. You know why? It's sad, and it's depressing, and it's extremely violent. We just skip it. But it's also very real, and it's very honest. And what it does is I think it gives every one of us some perspective. What do I do? How do I survive the holidays? What do I do when my life, it feels like it's going from bad to worse. Matthew chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can follow along or you can follow on the screen. There are some verses I won't have on the screen. But the story starts in verse 13. And here's what we read. It said, when the Magi had gone, 
An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape. Flee to Egypt and then stay there until I tell you. For Herod, he's going to search for the child and he's going to try and kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and they left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. So it was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. If you're jotting down notes, here's the first thing to write down. When God directs you, obey him. When God directs you, obey him. Now we see Joseph obeying God at least in three different ways. He, he obeys God immediately during the night. It wouldn't it have been tempting to just think to yourself, you know what? Why don't we let Mary get a little more sleep? The baby just stopped crying. He fell asleep. We've got a pediatrician's appointment at 9. Then we're going to pick up some groceries at 10.30. We'll be out of here just after lunch. Wouldn't it be, that would seem normal, right? Oh, no, no, no. no do it right now. I want you to get up and I want you to pack right now. Um, my, my kids are not babies anymore, but, but parents, can you remember what it was like? To go on any kind of a trip with an infant, with a newborn. Do you remember what that was like? You'd get them ready. They were all ready to go. And then you'd go and get yourself ready. When you came back, the baby had destroyed their breakfast. It was all over them. Now you would had to put some new clothes on them. You'd put some new clothes on them. Then you'd take the luggage and put it in the car. And then you'd come back and you'd realize their diaper was full. So you'd have to take care of that. And then you'd go and do something else for the car. And then you realize that they, they, they needed to be fed. It was an ordeal just to go out to dinner. It's like a 45-minute, 50-minute thing just to get the kid in the car. And this is happening in the middle of the night with no electricity. And as best as they can tell, they're never going to come back. Just grab the suitcase and throw whatever you can in. Now, quick. When God speaks to you, do whatever he wants you to do and do it immediately. Do it now. Don't wait. God has tried to speak and, and, and clearly communicated to some of you as it relates to your family or your marriage or your kids or your career. Things you do and things you don't do. And you, you, you knew it was God talking to you. But you still, we still haven't done that yet. When God speaks to you, do it. Do it now. Do it quickly, immediately. Also, do, do it and obey completely. Okay, Joseph, what I need you to do is go to Egypt. Egypt, this is the place that the Jews remembered as a place of slavery and hardship. You want me to go to Egypt? Yeah, I want you to go to Egypt. Now, Pharaoh's not in charge at Egypt anymore. The Roman control it, so it's at least somewhat safe. But you have to remember, um, Joseph is a carpenter. He's a carpenter. Does he have any of his tools with him? Mm-mm. In fact, likely he had to leave contracts and jobs he was doing up in Nazareth, hoping that he could pick the, the, the table cabinets and the, and the roof and everything he was working. When he came back, he had nothing with him. No work visa, no nothing. Okay, can't we just go back up to Nazareth? Isn't that going to be okay? Let's just get out of Jerusalem. Where Herod, no, I want you going to Egypt. Get out. Get to Egypt. If you thought that the, the traveling... From Nazareth to Bethlehem was difficult, 80 miles. From Bethlehem to Egypt was 180 miles. 
Except this time, it's still on a donkey, but with a newborn. When God gives you an instruction, obey immediately and obey, obey completely. Do what he's asking you to do. And the last thing, I didn't know how else to say this. Obey confidently. I'm going to talk about this whole idea. It keeps coming up in the, this phrase of it. What's happening is being fulfilled. But it says it. they stayed there until the death of Herod. It gives us a little hint. We think that this was a minimum of 12 months, more likely 18 months or longer. And the first question you have to ask yourself is, how did they survive that long? Because like I just said, no carpentry tools, no work visa, nothing. How do they survive? What you need to remember is that when God asks you to do something, he will also provide you with the means to pull it off. And sometimes it's, it's quite significant and quite amazing how he does that. It's like the story of this elderly Christian woman and she would come out onto her porch every morning and she would look up to the sky and she would say, praise the Lord. Well, she lived right next to an atheist and the atheist would hear this and he would yell out of his kitchen window, God doesn't exist. And every morning she would come out, praise the Lord. And he would come out and yell, God doesn't exist. Every morning the same thing. Well, one morning she, she comes out and she prays to God. She's going through some financial tri- trials and she doesn't have much to eat. And so she asks God to provide. And, um, the, the atheist heard, hears this prayer. So the next morning she comes out. She comes out to her porch and there are four grocery bags full of food. And she goes, praise the Lord. And right away the atheist comes running out and he goes, oh, no, 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 no. God did not provide those groceries. I got them. There is no God. A little elderly lady smiles and she says, praise the Lord. Not only did you provide for me, God, you made Satan pay for the groceries. (laughs) How, How did they survive, by the way? We looked at it last week. It's just six verses ago. Do you remember the gifts from the Magi that seemed so inappropriate? What are they going to do with expensive perfume? They're not going out to skates on the weekend. As best as we can tell, selling the three items that they received gave them at least one year's worth of income to survive in Egypt. See, when God asks you to do something, he figures out a way to provide for you to actually get it done as well. God is trying and going to communicate and talk to you. It may not be like he did to Joseph, but he's trying to do it. Believe me, he's trying to do it this morning. And whatever he's asks you to do, do it. Obey him. The second thing I want to encourage you to do is it's really not something to do. It's something to understand. Write this down. When you follow God, you're guaranteed to go through some trials and some problems and some issues. First Peter four twelve. it's a famous verse. We've read it before, but let's look at it again. Um, Peter says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happened happening to you. Peter says one of the things you have to understand is that part of being a follower of Jesus Christ is you're going to have issues. You're going to have problems. You're going to have trials. In fact, you may have more because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, when that happens, don't be so surprised. Frankly, I'm surprised that some of you are so surprised that you're going through a difficult time. It's all over the New Testament. Every generation of Christians has, quote unquote, suffered. The Western Christian living in the United States of America is the Christian that have it the best in all of history. And I guarantee you at some point in time, it'll turn. It's already turned for some of you. 
Don't be so surprised when you go through difficult times. Opposite. Be ready for that. Be prepared for it. I, I like how the same verse in the message translation. Friends, when life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. That's a pretty good way to say that. In other words, don't beat yourself up. I bump into so many of us, we're going through a difficult time, and we make it worse. What did I do? Why is God punishing me? You, you're not, you didn't do anything wrong. Maybe you did everything right. As a follower of Jesus Christ, expect, plan on trials, problems coming your way. You can guarantee them. Joseph could. Here's how it worked for them. Verses 16 through 18. Let's put it up on the screen. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he'd asked the Magi to come and give a report. And where is this Christ child? It says he was furious. Now, this is the second time we see that Herod has an anger issue in one chapter. Second time in verse three, we're told he was disturbed. In other words, he was frustrated, just a little bit angry. But I want you to notice something. If you have your Bibles, look at verse 3, because it gives us a little detail. King Herod heard, uh, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. There's the anger. And then it adds this. And all Jerusalem with him. It's interesting. The, the sin of anger is something that doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone else around you. In this case, it, it affected all of Jerusalem. Do you realize that if you do not know how to control your temper and you don't deal with your anger in an appropriate well, you're disturbing the entire family. You're disturbing the entire workplace. You're disturbing your entire classroom, your entire team, your entire church. It's never just me. No, when we erupt and we blow up with our anger, it affects everyone else around us, as it did with Herod. Learn how to control your temper. In this case, that word furious in the Greek is no longer an active word. It's a passive word, giving us an indication that he was no longer in control of his anger. In verse 3, he was, because the Magi are still there, and I'm still trying to impress them. I want them to come back. In, ver in this verse 16, he loses it, completely out of control. And it says he gives orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. Why two years and under? Last week, remember, we talked about the idea that the Magi likely didn't show up on the night of the birth. They showed up when Jesus was a toddler. And very simply, two years is how long they'd seen the star. We saw we see we saw the star in the sky. That's when Jesus was born. It takes them two years to plan the trip to execute the trip, and to get to Jerusalem and thereafter Bethlehem. Two years. So, so Herod goes, okay, two years and under. He must be at no older than two years. That's what I'm going to take out. Kill all the boys two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Well, then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice, what is this? A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Ramah was a town in that region of the world that had a historical significance for the Jewish people. Years earlier, when they had been invaded and they had been sent to a foreign land and slaves, Ramah was the holding place for all the Jewish slaves. So what, what uh, Ellis Island is to the United States of America years ago as immigrants come into the United States, Ramah was for the Jewish people as they were sent away. And the, the, the gospel writer is saying, 
just like the Jewish people were sent into exile from Ramah, Ramah is now weeping and in great mourning because the Messiah given not just to the Jewish people, but the entire world is being sent into exile. Rachel is also, it says, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted. What's up with Rachel? Rachel is, is part of the patriarchal family of the Jewish nation. Rachel was buried in Bethlehem. And the gospel writer is saying figuratively, Rachel, she also is weeping for all the children whose lives have just been lost because they are no more. Caesar Augustus had once said that it would be better to be Herod's pig than his very own son. And he said this because of all the people Herod killed. I wrote this down to make sure I got it right. Herod killed two of his very own sons. He killed his favorite wife. He had ten. He killed his favorite wife. He killed his 18-year-old brother-in-law and the grandfather. He killed his 80-year-old uncle and the mother-in-law. He killed all 70 members of the parliament or the Sanhedrin in one night. Killing a couple dozen boys in the slums of Bethlehem, no big deal. You know, if you're a soldier, you know that in war, unfortunately, there are times when the elderly are killed and women are killed and children are killed. But to our actually target children, it's unthinkable. It's immoral. Everybody in the palace was on pins and needles when Herod lost it. He got up early the next morning, called in his security team, and he gave the orders. Two years and under, kill them all. Soldiers, like I said, they, they knew that it was the wrong thing to do, but they had grown accustomed. I mean, they had killed so much for Herod in the past. No big deal. So after breakfast, they got on their horses, and it was no more than a 10-minute ride to Bethlehem. When Herod's men showed up into the town hall, into the town center, people were peering out their windows wondering who it was. And they clearly realized it wasn't the Romans, it wasn't the, the military police, it was, it was Herod's men. They could tell by the bandana they were wearing, wearing on their arms. The leader of the group, he called a town councilman. And he asked him to rally and to get everybody that had young children, two years and under, they thought they were going to make some sort of announcement. People were whispering, thinking maybe this has something to do with the census. And people finished feeding their children and quickly went out to the town square because you didn't mess with Herod's men. They thought they were going to make some sort of a speech or something. But then the head, he took his dagger out. And he thrust it into the neck of one of the boys. And it was like time stopped. But then the pandemonium started. It took a lot longer than they expected. It took them a couple hours. What they hadn't counted on, they should have, is that the moms and dads started fighting back, as you would, as I would. And that day, not only young boys lost their life, but moms and dads lost their life. And when those men rode off in the distance from Bethlehem. Moms were on their knees crying. 
over the bloody corpses of their young boys. When Christmas goes from bad to worse. They were the first martyrs because of Jesus. By no means the last. You do know that in the last 75 to 100 years, more people have died because of Jesus in the last 2,000 years combined. Did you know that? It's not in the news, but in places in Asia and Africa and even South America, people are losing their lives just because they're doing what you're doing here this morning. That's the only reason. That bothers me. When you read historians, they say, well, it was probably no more than, you know, 20 to 30. And that phrase, no more, is just, it's like a slap in the face off the page. What do you mean, no more? One would have been a big enough issue. When this kind of thing happens in the world, when it happens to us, when it our world starts falling apart. Don't you wonder what God is doing? Don't you wonder why, why, why does all this garbage happen? Why do all these bad things seem to happen to good people? In this case, innocent people. The problem of evil is suffering is a big issue, and I'm not going to solve it for you in a couple minutes. But to just give you something to wrap your head around real quickly, the three reasons why bad things happen to good, and in this case, Matthew 2, innocent people, is, is number one is because there are sinful people in the world. Now, that includes you and me. It's the reason that sometimes I hurt you and you hurt me is because we're sinful and we do and we say things that are hurtful to each other. The world is filled with sinful people. Sometimes bad things happen just because we live in a fallen world. It, so someone is in their car and they lose control of their car and they get in an accident and they die. Uh, that's certainly uh, what happened there. Well, it's because we live in a fallen world. And as a result of Genesis 3, the, the things are continually falling apart and bad things are continually happening. That's the whole point of Genesis 3. And then don't miss the last one. It's because there's a vicious enemy that's trying to attack you at any chance they get. Any chance. You've given your life to Jesus Christ and the enemy knows you're here this morning and is going to do everything and anything they can to hurt you. Now, as a pastor, and just, I, I've noticed that there are two camps of Christians when it comes to talking about our enemy, Satan. There are some Christians that no matter what happens, it's Satan's fault. Have you met Christians like this? You know? My, my cable goes out right in the middle of my favorite football game. Must be Satan. You know? I get the flu. Must be Satan. I get a flat tire. Must be Satan. No. You just drove over a nail in the parking lot. It had nothing to do with Satan. You know how we know that? Because Satan is not omnipresent. Everything bad that happens in the world isn't Satan. On the flip side, there are some Christians that no matter what happens, it's never Satan. You can have an exorcist scene where someone's head is spinning around and they're throwing up and they're say, speaking in languages they don't understand. Oh, no, that's not Satan. That's the flu. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I can't figure it out for you, but here's what I know. There is an enemy 
and he is real and he is alive and he is trying to beat your family up and beat your kids up and beat your body up and beat your finances up. He will not give up. So I can't figure out what, which one of these it is in every situation, but you got to understand that that's what's happening. Understand when you follow God, you can expect trials. So what is your action point? When you leave this room, get ready. Because it's coming. And I'm not trying to be negative. I'm trying to be a realist. It's going to happen to every one of us. A month from now, a a, a, a year from now, our life's going to go from bad to worse. Get ready. Be prepared and don't beat yourself up when it's happened. It's not necessarily you. The last thing I want to encourage you to do, I'm going to wrap up with this, is that When life doesn't make sense, remember that God is still and always in control. I don't have these verses on the screen. It's the last five verses of Matthew 2, verse 19. It says this, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Now, this is the second time Joseph has had a dream. It's the second time God is speaking to him through a dream. Let's just talk about this real quickly, go on a quick tangent. Does God still speak to us through dreams? And the answer is he could. He could, but as your pastor, let me say this to you. If you think God is speaking to you through a dream, be very, very skeptical. Be skeptical. Why? Because 99.9% of the times when he wants to speak to you, he does through through this book. Through a sermon on this book, through a Bible study on this book, uh, through a devotional on this book, through a conversation for someone else who's having a, a, a reading this book, through a song about this book. This is what he normally does today. Right? That doesn't mean he can't speak to you through a dream and he can't speak to you through a conversation and he can't speak to you through a country western song. Well, he can't do that. For sure he can't do that. But you get my point. Okay? This is how he speaks to you 99.9% of the times. So if you're not hearing him, my first question is, are you reading this book? You go, well, why does he speak to to, to Joseph in dreams? Because he didn't have this book. That's the point. But you and I do. Verse 20. The angel of the Lord said, get up, take this child and mother and go back to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father, uh, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Now, notice that God speaks to him in a dream. God said, speak to you through the word. But he also wants you to use discernment. He also wants you to use your brain. So he says to Joseph, go back to, to, to Israel. So he starts going back and he goes, oh, wait a minute. Archelaus, Herod's son, is now in charge. And he's as much of a punk as his dad was. So we're not going to go to Jerusalem. We're, now we're going to go back to Nazareth. So understand that God gives you a choices in, even in the midst of how he's guiding you. Now, what I want to land on is the last verse of chapter 2. Because of how a phrase that it says, it gets repeated over and over again. Notice, notice what it says in verse 23. He went and lived in a town called Nazareth. Here it comes. So was fulfilled. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. 
he will be called a Nazarene. Let me show you this next slide. The phrase, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophets. That phrase gets repeated over and over and over and over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew. In the first two chapters, it gets repeated in reference to Jesus Christ. In chapter one, he's going to be born of a virgin. Imagine the first prophet, you know, saying that. He's like, I, that's what I, God told me, you know. In chapter two, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Also, he's going to come from Egypt. There's going to be death and mourning associated with his birth. He's going to be known as someone that's from Nazareth. All this is prophesied. By the way, when the prophets gave all their prophecies, everybody was convinced a couple of them were wrong. Because of the whole birthplace and who he was. I mean, how can you possibly be born in Bethlehem, but come from Egypt and be known as a Nazarene? How can that happen? Well, then you read the story of Jesus and everybody's like, oh, now we get it. So here's the point. Every single time this is mentioned, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said. In other words, the gospel writer is saying, God knew this was going to happen way before. God had this in control. He knew what was going to happen, when it was going to happen, why it was going to happen, and for what purpose it was going to happen. He knew it all. Now, the minute that I wrap my brain around that, the first thing I think of is, wait, time out. If God knew all this was going to happen, then what's with the babies getting killed? Uh, why, why didn't you put a stop to that? Well, why didn't you put a stop to what happened in so-and-so's home and what happened with their job and what happened with their health? Well, why didn't you, if you are in control, if you, why, why didn't you put a stop to all that? Does your brain ever go there? Because my brain goes there. Let me give you one last verse. I'm going to wrap it up with this, but this is important. Let me show you in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Now, here's what's going on here. God is saying to every one of us this morning, you're not God. Just turn to the person next to you and say, you're not God. Just do it right real quick. That's what he's saying. You are not God. Okay? You act like it at work, you're not God. I'm God. He's like, okay, they're not going to get this. They're not going to understand this. So I'm going to try and help them understand that they're not God and that I'm God and that my ways are different than their ways and my thoughts are different than their thoughts. And so he gives us an illustration. Okay, let me help you understand how different God says I am than you are. He says, you know, as the heavens are higher than the earth, you know, we, we've seen, you know, we've had our astronomy classes and we saw the pictures in, in high school class and the science and we saw the galaxies and everything. You, you know, the distance between earth and, and the highest planet and all the galaxies, that distance as the heavens are higher than the earth, that distance. So are my ways higher than your ways. So are my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You see what he's saying here? So let me break it down even more. Let me give you some bullet points. Let's put it up on the screen. Light travels 186,000 miles per second, scientists tell us. That means it takes light eight minutes to travel the 93 million miles between the sun and earth. So when we walk out of this room, the sunlight that we will see and that will hit us on our face, it took eight minutes to travel from the sun. Just eight minutes, 93 million miles. One more point. Astronomers, oh, go back, go back, pick that out. Oh, Sermon was almost ruined right there. <laughs> Last bullet point. Astronomers have identified galaxies 12.3 billion light years from Earth. 
So you follow? Light travels 186,000 miles, uh, eight minutes from, from the sun to earth, but there's galaxies 12.3 billion light years from earth. Now put it up there. That means your best thought on your best day falls 12.3 billion light years short of God's thoughts. So when you and I are going, why are you doing that, God? He's like, uh, I can't explain it to him. Because they're a little stupid. I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm trying to help you understand. Your brain, your thoughts, and God thoughts, 12.3 billion light years difference. So even if he did try and understand, and did try and explain it to us, either our brains would explode, or we would go, yeah, no, I don't get it. So in the end, here's what I get to do. I get to go to bed tonight and I'm going to sleep well knowing that God's got this. I don't need to understand it. I just need to know that he's got it. I need to remember and this thing I do understand that he sent his own son Jesus Christ to be born so that he could die for me and he could die for you. That I get. Let's close in a word of prayer. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I just want you to take a deep breath. I know that some of us are here today and we do feel like our life has gone from bad to worse this past year. And we're struggling at home and we're struggling at work. And our bodies are falling apart and our relationships are broken. And we're frustrated. And if we're honest, we're also discouraged. And if, if, if you feel like that this morning, if you feel like Joseph, my life's gone from bad to worse. There's three things I want to remind you of. In the midst of your trials and problems and issues, when God speaks to you, obey him. Do what he wants you to do. And for every single one of us here, it may be different, but I know he's trying to talk to you and he's trying to communicate. Do what he wants you to do. Second thing is realize and remember that problems and issues, it's part of life. So ask God for strength and ask him for perseverance and ask him for hope. Ask him for an attitude that, that you would stick with it and keep fighting. And finally, sleep well tonight. And trust God. Trust that he's got this. Even though you don't understand it, he's got this. You may never understand it. Heavenly Father, I want to pray for those that are here today and they're hurting and whether they're actually thinking about surviving the holidays or wishing they'd just go by as quickly as possible. Some are dreading next year because this year's been so hard and it, there doesn't seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Father, especially for those 
who are in a dark place today, I pray that you would, you would speak to their hearts. Remind them that you walk by them day by day. Speak to their minds and remind them that they, they may not understand, but you got this. Remind them with their hands and their actions that regardless of what's happening in my life, I am to live in a way that glorifies you. So, Father, give us the courage, the discipline, and the self-control to live our lives in a way that is consistent with what you've told us in your word. Father, remind us that our time here on earth is short. Remind us that while this life may be challenging and difficult, that because of our commitment with Jesus Christ, we have an eternity with God the Father in heaven. Father, we are so incredibly grateful for that first Christmas. The turning point in mankind when you sent your son to redeem us. We love you. We thank you for your word and how it teaches us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.